Our scripture today comes from Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Good morning. Glad to be here uh, again um, with you all. Uh, Someone who was really excited this morning to be here was our two-year-old son, Felix. Uh, He had a great time here uh, in January. We were here last, and uh, this morning we said, we're going to another church. And immediately he said, without being prompted, he said, King's Cross Church. And so he was really excited to uh, be back here, and I think that's a testament to the children's ministry here and all those who serve in the children's ministry and uh, the wonderful job that you all do. Uh, Thank you, Paul. (laughs) Uh, So we're excited to be here. Uh, We love King's Cross. We love... Uh, Paul and Megan, as I'm sure many of you do, and uh, just love church plants. Um, church plants, you know, to be uh, successful in every sense of the word uh, requires a core group of people who are hungry for renewal, who are seeking after renewal, not just for themselves, but um, for others, for their community. And so uh, just, you know, love, love being uh, here, love being uh, with a church plant with people um, hungry for renewal. And this morning, that's kind of going to be what we're talking about a little bit, is we're going to be talking about uh, what renewal looks like in the Christian life, what is possible for us in the Christian life as we look at the Beatitudes that were just read a moment ago. The Beatitudes are in Matthew chapter 5, if you want to go ahead and pull out uh, your Bibles, whatever you use to follow along. Um, Beatitudes are the, sort of the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and the Sermon on the Mount is just one of five major chunks of teaching in the book of Matthew, and all of Jesus' teaching in the book of Matthew really tells us uh, what his kingdom is like and what life in his kingdom uh, is like for us. And so this morning, though, as we're looking at the Beatitudes, I really want to use this as an opportunity um, not so much to look at each Beatitude, you know, for sort of three minutes each. I don't know how helpful uh, that would be for our time, but instead I want to use the the Beatitudes as an opportunity to really talk about uh, how do we uh, understand Jesus's teaching about his kingdom and how do we apply it. And I hope that this will kind of be, as we're doing a general overview, that this will be helpful, not just in understanding the Beatitudes, uh, but also the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, uh, Jesus's teaching in the book of Matthew as a whole, and really all of his teaching in all four of the Gospels. And so, again, my hope uh, is that this will be just a helpful time for us uh, as we seek to understand Jesus's teaching. And for some of you, this may just be Reminders, uh, some of you, this may be really helpful information as you're coming to better understand uh, the Bible. So uh, I have in my hands this morning, starting with a little bit of show and tell, uh, a book that's been on my shelf for a long, long time. 
It's called Lend Me Your Ears. The subtitle is Great Speeches in History. It's by William Sapphire. Uh, it is a book that was given uh, to my brother in 1997 uh, by my mom uh, for his birthday. And so it still has uh, the note in here on the front that I think is just really special. It says, Joe, happy birthday. I sincerely wish you all the best this world has to offer. With much love, respect, and admiration, Teresa. Um, this was given to him on his, on his 27th birthday, and it was just uh, three short years uh, before he um, took his life in 2000. Uh, so I inherited this book. And it's been sitting on my shelf for a long time. And, uh, you know, as I've looked over it uh, over the years, uh, I, there's plenty of different categories of speeches in here. There's memorials and patriotic speeches and war and revolution speeches and then tributes and debates, trials, gallows and farewell speeches. And then you get to this uh, close to the end here and you have this section on sermons. And right beneath uh, the, the first sermon is the Buddha urges a turning away from craving in his fire sermon. And right beneath that is Jesus of Nazareth delivers the sermon on the mount. And when I first inherited this book and I looked at that, um, it left an impact on me because I realized, you know, it, it's, it shouldn't be surprising in a way that the Sermon on the Mount is recorded in a book of greatest speeches in history. Uh, because I think anyone who has heard the name of Jesus has probably heard at least one line uh, from the Sermon on the Mount. And we all immediately develop an opinion about the Sermon on the Mount, right? And so this is a, this is a, a famous speech that everyone has more or less heard about and everyone more or less has some kind of opinion about it. Um, some people come to this Sermon on the Mount and they're inspired to live a better life. Others come to it and agree that it's a good template uh, for an ethical and fair society. Maybe others come to it and they take a sentence or two and they, and they take it out and they twist it for some kind of social or politi political agenda. And of course, you have many Christians uh, come to the Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is teaching on the kingdom. And we sort of, uh, we, we use theological gymnastics to kind of get our way, you know, get out from under, uh, the conviction of what Jesus is being said. And so many of us have opinions about the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. And to be honest, a lot of our opinions are probably wrong. So we have to deal with that. But then we also have to deal with this other, uh, barrier. Uh, I was a little bit cheeky in titling this sermon. I hope you maybe noticed that in the bulletin. Uh, hashtag blessed is a common tag on social media that people use to sort of, as, as language to say, this is the good life, right? Life is good. Uh, and so I did a, um, a search a couple weeks ago on hashtag blessed on Instagram just to see what the results were on this. And uh, over 120 million results came back on Instagram. And I looked at maybe the first hundred or so uh, on there. And most of them had to do with either fitness, uh, kids, or someone sitting in a coffee shop. Blessed. Right? Um, <laughs> life is good. You know, I think that's the, that's the big idea. And so we have these two barriers really to understanding what Jesus is, says here, what he says about life in his kingdom. We need to understand, well, what, what, what does it mean, first of all, to, uh, um, to, to live life in his kingdom? What does that look like for us? And so that's one, one big challenge. And then, of course, the other big challenge is understanding what he means by blessed and blessed are. You know, we have a very selfish understanding 
of blessing. And so we need to sort of deal with these barriers. Uh, and that's what I want to help us do this morning in understanding Jesus's teaching. So we're going to do kind of a general overview. And what I want to do uh, to begin is we're going to look at three uh, misconceptions or three ways that we mistreat the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus's teaching on the kingdom. And then when we get to the end, we'll close with um, one sort of guiding principle to help us understand Jesus' teaching here. And so uh, as we begin, if you would just pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, we come this morning uh, to sit under your word. And so just pray for uh, humility that you would make us poor in spirit, uh, which would include uh, humbling ourselves, uh, not to sit over your word, thinking that we can judge it for ourselves, but instead to receive it, to be conformed uh, by it, to, to, to conform into the image of Christ. And so, Lord, we help. Uh, pray that you would help us this morning by your spirit, uh, to understand and apply your word, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So, number one, the first way that we can mistreat or have a misconception about Jesus' teaching on the kingdom is to think that it's talking about everyone else but us. To think that it's talking about everyone else but us. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the poor in, poor in spirit. Blessed are the pure in heart. You know, I've been trying to tell my brother-in-law that for years. He just won't listen. You know what? This week, after this sermon, I'm going to send him this sermon this week. Maybe he'll finally listen to what that pastor has to say. Please don't do that. Please don't do that. But you see, we all do this. We all have this sort of instinct inside of us to maybe hear what Jesus says and then think that it's talking about someone else before it's talking about us. There's a sly little pharisaical monster inside of each and every one of us that's always trying to find clever ways to rationalize or to excuse ourselves from conviction, but to maybe uh, uh, point fingers at others and make them part of the problem, but not us. We want to read the Bible through the lens of looking for blessings for ourselves, but conviction for everybody else. We want to point the fingers at others, and rather than first being introspective and being honest about who we are. I finished an essay recently by uh, the, the author Wendell Berry. Some of you may know that name. The essay was titled, What Are People For? What Are People For? And he begins this essay by talking about this. He's, he's writing this in the 80s. Uh, but he, he's talking about sort of uh, the, the ways people misunderstand each other at the present time. And one of the ways he says that people are misunderstanding each other is that you have people in the city who are saying, you know what the real problem today with our society is that there's too many farmers, there's too many farmers. And if, if farmers would just give up their trade of farming and move to the city and contribute to a growing economy, then we could all get along. And Wendell Berry says, you know, it's easy to say that there's too many farmers if one is not a farmer. Right? It's easy to say that other people are the problem if we're not being willing to be honest about ourselves. You remember how Jesus diagnoses the pharisaical heart in Luke 18 when he has the Pharisee and the and the uh, um, tax collector. He describes the Pharisee as the one who looks to themselves for being righteous and then who looks down on others with contempt. It can be easy to use Jesus' teaching as a weapon against others, but as a source of approval for ourselves. Some of you may have heard the name Charles Finney. He was a really interesting guy. Uh, he was a um, prominent pastor and leader in the Second Great Awakening in the United States. And um, there's a story about him where he went to guest preach at a church, uh, a wealthy, very wealthy New England church. 
And uh, he decided to preach on the passage in Luke where Jesus, where he says, uh, any of you who become my disciple uh, must give up everything that they have. Right? And he, so you can understand how that may have went for him. And so he preaches on that sermon. And uh, after he gets done with the sermon, the, the pastor of the church, he gets up and he's embarrassed. The pastor, Lyman Beecher, he's embarrassed. And he gets up and he feels like he has to make an apology uh, for Charles Finney. And he says, you know, uh, congregants, uh, uh, God wouldn't actually want you to give up anything. He just wants to know that you might be willing to. At which point, Finney shot out of his seat and he said, the moment you become a disciple of Jesus, you lose ownership of all your possessions. And so too for us, the moment we become a disciple of Jesus, he becomes Lord over our lives, not just what we own, but who we are, our character and our emotions and our relationships. And so in the Beatitudes, Jesus is telling us what our lives must look like if we're going to follow him. You remember what he says later in the Sermon on the Mount, before we think about taking out the speck in someone else's eye, we take out the log in our own. So he's telling us what our lives must look like if we're going to follow him. But this takes us to the second mistake of misunderstanding the Beatitudes and Jesus's kingdom teaching. And that would be to turn the Beatitudes into a list of rules and requirements to earn blessing from God. Uh, uh, turning, turning the Beatitudes into a list of rules and requirements that we must achieve. And um, the great thing about this is that everybody does this mistake as well. There's, there's religious ways to do this, and there's very secular ways to do this. And so I want to take a moment just to approach each of these um, and to sort of uh, explain what these look like. The, the religious way to do this, the religious way to turn this into a list of rules and requirements is to approach the Beatitudes, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, purely through our categories of law and grace. To approach this purely through our categories of law and grace. This is a very Martin Luther thing to do, okay? And, and so someone who approaches uh, the Beatitudes in this way will sound like this. They'll say, aha, the purpose of these high demands that Jesus is making is to show us that we're incapable of keeping the law. It's to burden us and to show us how great of sinners we are and to show us how great of need of grace that we are. There's two mistakes with this view. The first mistake is to equate the Sermon on the Mount with the Mosaic Law. Certainly, aspects of the Mosaic Law are in the Sermon on the Mount. But in every case, Jesus' teaching far exceeds the Mosaic Law in its scope and its depth. Jesus says later in the sermon that he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And then he goes on to say, uh, for example, that our righteousness must exceed the Pharisees. And so he shows how both anger and lust are not merely sins of outward behavior, but sins of the heart. And so the scope of the Beatitudes and, and Jesus's kingdom teaching, it's far wider and its depth is far richer than the Mosaic law. But this view also exposes a second mistake, and it's more subtle. It's this attitude that God is out to, out to get us, to trick us. It's this attitude, uh, we get this idea in our heads that the whole purpose that Jesus would come to deliver this, this beautiful sermon is to make us feel miserable about ourselves. This is a view I think many of us struggle with deep down in our thinking. We think that God's out to withhold good things from us. 
And yet, the pronouncement of the Beatitudes is this. Blessed are. Blessed are. The word for blessed here is the word makarios. A, a macarism um, is, is what we call this. A macarism is a, a declarative or congratulatory statement about God's beneficial action to a person. And so this is why you may have heard translations that say, happy are, happy are the peacemakers, or happy are the poor in spirit. Because the person who truly knows God's blessings are to be congratulated, to be celebrated for receiving such favor. And so simply turning the Beatitudes, Jesus' teaching, um, into a list of rules and requirements or a demonstration of the burden of the law, is really to undermine what Jesus says here. It undermines the force of what Jesus says here, and such a view really diminishes his life and what he came to accomplish for us. I've been helped a lot, as I'm sure some of you have in this room, uh, in my own understanding of Jesus' kingdom teaching by the work of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, he wrote a, a lengthy volume on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, that's really helpful if, if you want to understand this a little bit more in depth. And uh, let me just read for you what he says in his introduction about how we mistreat Jesus' teaching here. This is what he said. He said, Is it not true to say that many of us, that in actual practice, our view of the doctrine of grace is such that we scarcely ever take the plain teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ seriously? We have so emphasized the teaching that all is of grace and that we ought not to try to imitate his example in order to make ourselves Christians that we are virtually in the position of ignoring his teaching altogether and of saying that it has nothing to do with us because we're under grace. So friends, if we neatly fit Jesus' teaching here into just law grace categories, we would really miss what exactly Jesus is saying here in this sermon and the Beatitudes. But there's also a very secular way, a very secular way to turn this just into a list of rules and requirements. And that would be to sort of just approach this as nothing more than a nice sort of foundational ethical blueprint for society that we can all more or less agree to in order to get along. But to, uh, to approach the Sermon on the Mountain that way, or really any moral creed, is really just to doom ourselves to failure from the get-go. I don't know how many of you may have heard the name uh, Yuval Noah Harari. He's an atheist, secular, humanist, uh, historian, and author. He's written a few really uh, foundational, really uh, important books. And uh, on paper, he's an author that I obviously, I couldn't disagree with more uh, when you're talking about the, the big questions in life. And yet he's so clear and so honest in his writing that uh, there are few people I like to read more than him. And so he wrote an essay uh, that I read uh, that uh, it's, on, it's on secularism, just secularism in general. And he begins the essay by uh, talking about how it's a mistake to think that secularists are immoral. It's a mistake to think that secularists are immoral. In fact, he argues why secularists are actually extremely moral. And he's right. Driven by the pursuit of truth and responsibility and a desire to minimize suffering, secularists as a, as a culture, as an ideology, uh, are actually driven to be very, very moral. But, he says, and this is why I love reading him so much, he says secularists must be willing to admit that they have a shadow. And the shadow is this. 
He says the problem is not that secularism is immoral, it's that the standard is too high. The ethical standards are too high. The standards are just too high to follow. And people and societies and individuals, they simply cannot handle complex problems like war or economic crisis, uh, just driven by some open-ended drive for truth and compassion. This is why he says secularism almost always mutates into some kind of dogmatic creed, such as Marxism or Stalinism or Maoism. Why? Because the pressures of crisis and complex problems will harden you and force you into some kind of dogmatic us or them thinking. This is true socially, it's true individually. You see, if you approach the Beatitudes simply as a list of neat rules for an ethical life, you're going to crush yourself. You're going to crush yourself by by your own failures. You'll likely find your own views of relationships and societies and hope for the future narrowing into some manageable, dogmatic ideology. And it's not going to work. And you'll turn this neat list of rules and checkboxes into something that you can just easily manage. The German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer, some of you may know his name, uh, he lived under one of these sorts of dogmatic ideologies in Nazi Germany. And he knew firsthand what, it, what this looked like. And I think this is why in his own teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, he emphasized that Jesus' teaching here is not for all people in general. This is not teaching for all people in general. It is those, he says, for, uh, for whom they are under the power of Jesus' call. Those who are under the power of Jesus' call. You remember he comes early in the book of Matthew. And when he begins his public ministry, he says, Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And immediately, disciples leave everything to follow him. And so, Jesus says, they are blessed. Not because they gave up everything. Not because they made these big sacrifices, but because they are under the power of Jesus' call. Because they are under the power of his call and they have believed the promises about his kingdom, Jesus can say to them that they are blessed. So let me ask you this morning, are you under the power of Jesus' call? Are you under the power of Jesus' call? Is he Lord over your life? Not just your possessions, but Lord over you, your character your emotions, your responses to crisis and complex problems? If not, friends, these blessings are not for you. That's the teaching here. If you're not under the power of Jesus' call, the blessings are not for you. And so this morning, it's not just an invitation, it's a call, it's a prayer that today you would come under the power of his call, that you would hear Jesus calling you into his kingdom, calling you to himself, and that you would respond with repentance and faith, and that you would come and follow Jesus, that these blessings would become yours. And if you have any questions about what that looks like, I would love to talk with you. Paul, Megan, anyone you've seen up here, you've seen out front, would love to talk to you this morning about what it looks like to come under the power of Jesus's call. And so we can think that the Beatitudes that Jesus is teaching are talking about everyone but us. We can turn it into a list of rules and requirements. And the third way that we can mistreat the Beatitudes is to approach it without a sense of awe or surprise. And perhaps what we all need this morning 
to remember the power of the call is to have a fresh sense of awe at what Jesus is saying here. It ought to be a surprise to us that Jesus pronounces blessings on those who are so lowly in nature. But is this not the upside-down nature of his kingdom, that he welcomes those who who have so little, that he welcomes those who have been made low, that blessings are not earned by strength or power, but by meekness and humility? This ought to surprise us. But friends, I think uh, residents of Loudoun County, residents of the D.C. metro area, what should truly amaze us is not that the kingdom is for enjoyed by the poor in spirit and the forgotten, but that it can also belong to us, the comfortable, the rich, the proud, those of us who are filled with our own ambitions, dreams, desires, plans, retirement funds, homes, cars, vacations. Hope you remember the story of that wee little man Zacchaeus from Luke 19. Zacchaeus was a rich man. He was not a rich man simply because he had an inherited wealth, although he may have. Zacchaeus was rich because he did, he was greedy and he was proud. He took advantage. Uh, He took illicit profits from his own people in order to get ahead. But when Jesus invited himself to his house, Zacchaeus came under the power of his call. And he turned from his corrupted ways. He promised to sell half of his goods to to the poor and to restore what had been taken fourfold. And then Jesus joyfully announced, Today, Salvation has come to this house, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Can you believe it? The kingdom of God belongs to you and to me. There's room in Jesus' kingdom for you and for me. And as author Jen Pollock Michael says in her book, Paradox, she says, it's a surprise that the kingdom has generous room for the least. It's a paradox that it welcomes those who have so much. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, and the call he gave to come into his kingdom is for you and for me. And so taking up residence this morning in the kingdom of God can be a reality for each and every person in this room today. Because you see, the call of Jesus' kingdom is the call into a kingdom which has already broken into this world. When Jesus gave his call and began his ministry and he said the kingdom of God is at hand, he declared uh, that his kingdom was here and he ripped a hole in space and time and the future kingdom came into the present. Tomorrow became today. And he established his kingdom on this earth. And it will never end. And this is why the Apostle Paul can say in Colossians 1 that if we have put our faith in Christ, that we have been been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. This is why, thinking about what we said earlier about mistakenly understanding the Beatitudes, Paul says in Titus chapter 2, he says that Christ not only died to redeem us from lawlessness and, and so that we can receive his grace, but 
also to purify us and to make us zealous for good works and his new kingdom. And friends, if you embrace that truth, then you'll see that the Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount, it's describing what life in Jesus' kingdom looks like. This is positively stated what the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount are for. Not only to show us what faithful Christian living looks like, but also to show us, to encourage us with what is possible. This is the last point and we'll close. For under the power of his call, we are residents of his kingdom. This can only happen by the power of God's spirit at work in us, delivering us from the domain of darkness and transferring us into the kingdom of the beloved son, which means that everything Jesus says here about his kingdom is possible for us today. This is what Martin Lloyd-Jones says again on this. He says, any one of us and every one of us whatever we may be by birth and nature, is meant as a Christian to be like this. And not only are we meant to be like this, we can be like this. He says, this is the central glory of the gospel. It can take the proudest man by nature and make him a man who is poor in spirit. Here in the Sermon on the Mount are the characteristics and the dispositions that are the result of grace, the product of the Holy Spirit, and therefore possible for all. By God's grace, he has transferred us into his kingdom, and he has transformed us by the work of the Spirit. And so, friends, this is where the Christian life is found. Powered by the Spirit, this new desire to be like Christ and to live with Christ in his new kingdom. And why will we receive mercy? Because Jesus won it for us. Why will we see God? Because by his spirit, Jesus will bring us to himself. Why can we be peacemakers? Because Jesus has made peace with us. You see, the life of the Beatitudes is possible today because Jesus made it possible. And we live through him now and with him now in his kingdom. And nobody said that would be easy. Circumstances will crush us. People will mock and revile us. Jesus even said it would be so. But this is the life to which we are called. This is what spiritual renewal in the Christian life looks like. And so may we, with hope and with love and excitement, take seriously the teaching of Jesus about his kingdom because he is our king. And we want to live with him. I'll close with this story. It's my favorite story from the civil rights movement. I hope you're familiar with the Montgomery bus boycott, which started in 1955 when Rosa Parks, you know, she wanted to, didn't want to give up her seat on the back of the bus. And so the whole city came together for the next year. African-American citizens partnered with their uh, white brothers and sisters. Uh, they refused to ride public transportation, which became a huge hit on the public economy, and they were uh, uh, boycotting for fairness and equality under the, the city's laws and systems. It was their way of being peacemakers without resorting to violence in the world. You may know the names Rosa Parks and Dr. King, but I wonder how many of you know the name of the 72-year-old woman, Mother Pollard. Dr. King 
one December night, halfway through, the, bu- the bus boycott, he was, he was ready to give up. He was ready to give up. They were all crowded in this church, and he was ready to throw in the towel. And all that he had been trying to achieve, the negotiations weren't going anywhere. He was tired. People were losing steam. So he was ready to give up on what he was trying to accomplish. But then Mother Pollard came forward to encourage him. Countless people had offered her rides to work, and she refused. Many had tried to get her to quit the boycott for the sake of her health and her old age. I mean, surely uh, it couldn't have been good for a 72-year-old woman to, to walk uh, through you know, the southern heat during the summer and the cold in the winter. But you know what she would tell people every time they wanted her to quit? She said this, and I love this line. She said, my feet is tired, but my soul is rested. My feet is tired, but my soul is rested. And Dr. King would later say it was the example and encouragement of Mother Pollard, which gave him the energy to get back in the fight until it was won. I think Mother Pollard understood the Beatitudes. I think she understood that the kingdom life would not be easy, but that it would be good. She understood that she could live like the future today. She knew where her hope and her strength came from. It came from the Lord. And then that that powered her, that strengthened her to live life differently on mission for Christ's kingdom and for others. And so may we, with spirit-powered, soul-filled hope for the future, live faithfully today because this is the call of our Savior. This is the blessed life in Christ's new kingdom. Let's pray together. Lord, you have spoken. May we listen. Call to us and we will answer. Command us, impose on us what you will, and we will submit. None but the Lord, none but Christ. We are yours, Lord, your own, and so we ask that you would do with your own, demand of your own, whatever you please. What you will have us be, Lord, what will you have us do? That is what we will be and that is what we will do. So no longer what we will, but your will be done. For your reign over us is in your kingdom now and forever. Amen.